The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. And basically, we say that we should just love. Just love God, just love our neighbor, just love ourselves, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. And, you know, we talk about big issues, but we also say that individually we all have a responsibility to make our world better, to make it more just, to make it more compassionate. And even if we're not always engaged or maybe rarely engaged in big matters, we are also engaged in the day-to-day activities of trying to be um, good neighbors, trying to be good members of our family, being good colleagues at work. And so in those areas, we can just love. We can just love God. We can just love our neighbor. We can just love ourselves. And if all six or seven billion people in the world did that, I have no doubt that our world would be more just and it would be more compassionate. Um, Tom, how, what'd you do for the 4th of July weekend? Oh, let's see. Well, well, uh, we did make it over to a group of friends and I went over to, uh, the East river. Uh, that's where the fireworks were this year. And I have to tell you, they were spectacular. Uh, we went over, there's a small park at the end of 57th street. They usually close at, at dark. So I didn't think they'd let us stay, but they did. And it was just, it was phenomenal. I mean, uh, it was just uh, the fireworks went off down by the United Nations and it went on for like 25 minutes. So it was it was really a spectacular showman scene. It was a it was a great Fourth of July. How about the crowds? Were there a lot of crowds? Yeah, there was. Um, You know, at first it it, it wasn't that crowded, the park. But then I'd say probably about eight or eight thirty, more and more folks started to come in so that by the time. Now, luckily, we had gotten uh, to a place where you could sit on like a. a ledge so you could actually we were able to stand a ledge and see um but it got the crowd got pretty deep where we were i'd say there was probably from like where you're at on the side of the river there was probably about six or the crowd was six or seven deep so if we weren't able to stand on the ledge i don't think we would i don't think we would have been able to see anything so it was it was pretty crowded <laughs> you've done this before right you've gone right. through so mm-hmm. how did the crowds compare with um, you know, two or three years ago before COVID? Uh, you know, uh, a little, uh, uh, not as crowded as when I've gone before two or three years ago. I can say that, but but still pretty crowded. You know, um, they were letting people down onto the FDR drive, which I didn't do because to get there, you had to go through a metal detector and, and there was a long, long line. Um, so I didn't do that part. That would have been right in front of where the fireworks were. And I've done that before. So when you go down to that area, that's pretty crowded. But where I was, you know, uh, there were there were a lot more people. And I would say, but for, you know, I'd say, but for like maybe a tenth of the crowd was masked. But in that, everybody else was masked less. So uh, you know, it just it was like it was like the old days. It really was. <laughs> okay. All right. That's um, that's good. I'm glad that you um, that you went and you checked that out and to um, uh, <clears throat> see that. And I do think I mean, I've been noticing that many people and I'd say even most people are without masks. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit intriguing, 
I'm not quite sure how, because I was at a meeting earlier today, and at that meeting, everybody had masks on. So mm-hmm. it, was in, it was interesting just to kind of um, figure, I think we're still a little bit, um, you know, we're still in that area of trying to figure it all uh, figure it all out. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Tom, why don't we go to our first guest? Our first guest is Timothy McManus, who is the Senior Vice President of Catholic Charities Progress of People Development Corporation. And uh, Tim, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Yeah, great to be here. Glad to uh, participate. So, Tim, give our give our listeners just a little bit of a sense of how you got to where you are, a little bit of your own history so that they get to know you a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, So I graduated from College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1998, in the middle of the dot-com era. And uh, I was snapped up by by one of those dot-com, and I was a software developer. But after five years, I just wasn't finding a lot of fulfillment, you know, within that that career choice. And um, I was in Boston at the time. And I remember uh, they opened up the big dig, you know, their big infrastructure project there to the community, you know, and allowed the community to go and walk on on these highways, these public the, the public spaces and seeing over half a million people, you know, kind of coming out like really, um, really interested and and i found that positive experience the community really interested in the physical environment inspiring so i went back to grad school and got a degree in urban planning uh which which uh, at rutgers university which which led me here to new york city and uh I, I i got involved with public housing and affordable housing and and really uh draw a lot of inspiration from being able to to as i referenced through the big dig being able to have a positive impact, you know, on the, on the physical environment, being able to make a difference in someone's life, you, you know, and having, having a purpose, you, you know, through my, my employment. And, and uh, I couldn't be more happier in the position I'm in, you know, to be building primarily my roles and responsibilities here are to uh, develop new affordable housing as, as well as repositioning existing assets. So <clears throat> that is great. Are you originally from the Massachusetts area, the New York area, where are you originally from? Yeah, my mom is from Massachusetts, actually, but uh, my parents were both in the military. You know, okay. they met at a, at a very young age and took that opportunity to see the world. So I grew up uh, overseas primarily, but mm-hmm. always had Massachusetts as, as a home base, Springfield, Mass. So I always have to ask that question. Does that make you a bad person? A yeah. Red Sox fan? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, I, I am almost. Um, I almost think it's. Crossing. I think it's time for us to go to our yeah. next guest. Um, we don't want to expose <laughs> our listeners to people who have gone over to the dark side. Yeah. So, um, uh, so uh, if I can point out, I am a New York resident, and I was uh, for for our harmonious uh, domestic lifestyle. I did take the New York Islanders as uh, my sole New York team that I support. So I'm not 100% on the dark side. No, 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 no. It's got <laughs> nothing to do with hockey. It's got, it's got 100% to do with baseball and the Red Sox. I mean, it, you know, all those others are distractions uh, from, from the real primordial evil that is there. So anyway, well, all right, since you're on the, since you're on the show, 
we might as well continue the interview. I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe conversion. We should always pray, pray for, for conversion because you talked about repositioning assets. And so maybe we need to reposition allegiance. <laughs> I mean, I think we need to, to worry about that. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about um, <clears throat> the Lodato C Corporation in the Diocese of Brooklyn. What that, what's that about? Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 grounded as, as I hope most of your listeners may or may not know. It's uh, an encyclical that was written by Pope Francis on caring for our common home. You know where where um, Pope Francis really takes a position that being good stewards for the environment, you know, is is um, is in alignment, you know, with with uh, w- with with what we're preaching, and especially as 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 it aligns in lower income populations, which are predominantly overly impacted by the ill effects of global global climate change. So we uh, at, at Catholic Charities, you know, we 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 were able to participate in uh, the Pontifical Council on Interreligious Di- uh, Dialogue, a trip to to Rome in 2017, uh, which which really exposed us to exposed myself to some of the um, to, to this encyclical. And on my way over on the airplane, my mother-in-law slipped a newspaper article in for me to read about solar development that had been taking place, you know, around our uh, around our area, where where these developers were using people's rooftops, you know, and they were essentially leasing them and selling the power back to the individuals. They were owning and operating the solar arrays on top of people's homes. And in exchange, providing them with a discount for their energy. And I thought, well, we have over 44 buildings here in Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, why don't we do something similar? You, you know, there's there's all these rooftops. Uh, I'm going over. This is certainly a priority, you know, for for the for the papacy as well as the diocese. Uh, why don't I take a little bit of a look at this? So, so over the course of a year and a half, we explored different models, and um, we started this. This this initiative, you know, with with consultation with leadership and and our board, where we have four buildings. It's it's an initial phase one, a pilot, you know, if you will. Where my organization, Pop Development Corp, is going to be owning and managing the solar arrays on top of these buildings, and we will be selling. We're participating in a community um, a community solar agreement where we will be selling the energy the energy we will be creating on our on our rooftops will be going into the grid and we will be asking our residents to voluntarily subscribe to participate you know in the in the solar array that's on top of their building and they'll get a discount on their energy price and then coned will be uh, our local utility provider will be paying us for the energy so the idea is is we are financing this with some grants and some other monies that this will now create a, a revenue stream, you know, for, for our organization to now reinvest in other um, sustainable initiatives across our portfolio. So, uh, Tim, let me, let me see if I understand that and, and let me help our listeners mm-hmm. to get a sense of it. So you have these solar panels on the top of, of a few buildings, okay, and they're generating energy, right? Yep. Okay. And so is that energy 
kind of being used in the in the buildings that are there? Nope. The energy, you can't ever trace an ion of energy, you know, goes into the solar panels, creates energy. You can't trace that ion into the grid and direct it back to your building. You know, it's not really possible. So the energy just goes into the grid. Okay. And there's a meter that reads how much energy is produced. Got it. And then there's an interaction with Con Edison who will okay. then give us credits and, and acknowledge that that amount of energy that we're generating. Okay. So, um, but, so let me ask you, this is just ignorance. So let me ask you, you know, if I live, if I live out in Omaha mm -hmm. and I live on a range and I put solar panels up there, I'm not generating energy for my own farm. It's going into the grid and I'm still buying back from the grid. Generally, that's what works. I mean, there are, there are other ways to get around if you have battery power or something, or, or if it's a closed loop, you could technically do that. But, okay. but here in New York City, it's not really set up that way. So, so in other words, so do, does anybody pay for this, the solar panels on the roof? Uh, we are paying for it. So, okay. so we, we, we did through the course of developing this model, you know, we worked with uh, enterprise community partners who provided us with a grant. Um, we here in New York, in New York state, we have the, the uh, NYSERDA, uh, which is a, a nonprofit utility statewide organization that provided us subsidy, which covered about a third of the cost of the solar panels. And my organization seeded, you know, the pilot uh, for this initial, this initial um, uh, four, four arrays on top of the buildings. We are still actively fundraising and hope to expand, you, you know, these, um, these solar panels to other roofs within our portfolio. So, so, Tim, I think one of the questions when people talk about this is the question of, can you get to scale? Yep. I mean, is, so let me phrase it in a little bit of a, of a kind of a provocative way that you can kind of say, well, isn't this, isn't, this isn't, isn't this a nice toy project? Then, you know, nobody's, it's, it's nice, but it, you never could provide energy to, for a whole apartment building in it, but it's nice you're doing it, but what, you know, does it really work? Right. No, that's a great question. And, and scale is, is a really important topic, you know, not just <laughs> from, from generation, but also from a financing perspective. Um, and the reason we, we reference this as a pilot, you know, is, is we really, we had to, we spent a, a, a number of years modeling this program out and we needed a proof of concept, you know, for our board. We needed to demonstrate before I committed all 44 roofs, you know, uh, to, to something like this, we needed to demonstrate, you know, that this was a financially feasible model, which is really important, you know, uh, as a affordable housing development entity, we, we need to be able to operate, you know, in the black so we can, you know, continue successfully. So, you know, our initial pilot, it's 256 kilowatts, which is enough to power about 70 apartments within our portfolio. It's not huge, but it's not insubstantial either. You know, 70 is, is for an initial foray, you know, something that, that is considerable in our perspective. But, but maybe in the solar industry, it's kind of small, but there's the opportunity for us to grow, to use this model uh, moving forward to really hit uh, significant uh, scales. Economy. But Tim, that, that's, I can get my hands around that. So uh, what you're saying is that 
the panels on the four buildings you're using in the pilot mm -hmm. can provide enough energy for about 70 apartments. Correct. And it, would that be full time? I mean, year round, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Yes. That would be full time. Obviously the solar, you know, when it's night out, it's not generating energy, but right. it generates, you know, that much kilowatt power, which is enough to power 70 units full time year round. I mean, that strikes me as being significant, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a big number, um, you know, here, maybe in the scale of New York City, you know, it's not a huge number, but it's, it's, it was sizable enough, you know, to uh, make a difference for our board, but not big enough, you know, to, to commit our entire portfolio. Right. You know? And with, I don't want to get into any of your trade secrets, yeah. but is there a, a level at which it does pay back where you don't need special grants? And stuff like that. Well, we've we've they, they they will pay back. It's just your tolerance, you know, for for how long do you need to be uh, see it pay back? You right. know, and our our underwriting indicates anywhere between eight or nine years, you know, ROI return on our investment. Okay. Um, we are hoping that this would be a non recoverable, you know, loan from our organization, so it should start generating revenue on day one for us. Right. So, so now that you, how, when did you begin this? Uh, probably started uh, 2017, September, when I was on that plane, kind of the idea germinated on our way over to Rome. And my staff are very interested in sustainability initiatives. Uh, certainly, it's become more of a, a priority here in New York State that uh, a, a lot of things just kind of aligned. You know, it took us some time. We had to evaluate the portfolio, make sure, look at the roofs, evaluate. Um, we certainly didn't want to put a solar array on a building that needs a roof replacement in three years. So, so there was some capital, you know, scale. As you mentioned, we had to make sure the rooftops were big enough to support a financially feasible array. You know, smaller roofs just don't make a lot of sense to put a couple of panels on top. So there was a lot of due diligence and analysis that, that went into this. And we had to put together a financial plan to our board to show how it would be financed, how the money would be coming in, and then how quickly we could, um, this would be generating revenue. So, so um, kind of since you're into affordable housing more than just sure. the solar panel. So if you were building a new project, how how do you think you might incorporate this concept into a new building that you're building up? It's it's interesting, you know, the way we um, it's much easier to finance solar panels in new construction than it is on an existing building portfolio portfolio, especially in affordable housing. Um, there's I, I don't want to get too deep into tax credits, you, you know, and how an affordable housing you know structures, but. It is um, probably more appropriate to, to finance the panels through the tax credit structure and the affordable housing structure than to use our entity. But what we're looking at is, is typically in a new construction, you enter into a partnership with investors. And at year 15, um, they, the, the nonprofit, such as ourselves, seeks to buy out the, the investors and at that point in time, we would like to come in, my, the, the Ladato Say organization, come in and purchase the solar panels and incorporate it into our network for, for below market at that point. Uh, these panels typically have, you know, anywhere from a 20 to 30 year lifespan. And now the infrastructure is in place. 
and it's a much cheaper to just replace the panels than it is to to run all the all the electrical you know and the the uh the framing you know to hold the panels at this so if, if you're building a new building in mm-hmm. new york city um let's say affordable housing from the scratch up and as i think what you said to do a little translating for our listeners when you're putting together all the monies the loans all of those type of things who's ever lending you the money who's ever investing says um well you can do this you can't do that you know you can't put gold faucets in we don't right, like right. that but you can put this in but what you're telling me is that in the current world we're living in the l- lenders the investors say you know solar panels are an allowable cost and we're going to going to do that so yeah. is there a downside of in every project including them because why not I don't think there's a downside. It's almost in in our world, it's almost a given in our world, meaning the affordable housing world here in New York City, that you've got to put solar panels. Uh, There's a big initiative um, here in New York City and working with with the the housing agencies that um, all buildings have to be electric. No more natural gas, no more oil to heat the buildings. You have to use, you know, electric powered heat pumps. So the electric load within the building is going to be quite high. And if you can use some of the tax credit equity, and equity is important as opposed to loans, you know, you you are getting equity um, to cover a percentage of the cost. It's a no brainer to to put solar on top of your uh, on top of your roof. So given all of the challenges, which I'm sure we don't need to go into all the messy things that happened to get you here. Where do you see this going in the future? I, I think what's, what's really important, as I touched on earlier, is, is we, in, in my world, we're in affordable housing. And when you have existing buildings, it's very difficult for a lot of these buildings to take on, to pay for themselves, an initiative such as this. You, you know, they are sized to operate in the black, but not to make a lot of money, enough for you to build up your reserve. So in 10, 30 years when you need to replace, you know, some major equipment, you have enough reserves. But it's very hard to take on um, something unique like this. Um, So we're hoping, you know, to build the scale, we'll start generating some money over time that some of those buildings that that may not be able to afford this, we can expand, um, we can expand under those rooftops. And the next step that, that I read a lot, and I'm sure your, your listeners probably hear about with, with um, battery evolution technology, special, especially in automobiles, that technology is really accelerating quickly. And, and when it becomes more cost effective, um, we see this as kind of the next step you know, in incorporating this into our buildings. We have a lot of, of uh, elderly people within our buildings and... Um, with, with such a large uh, electricity demand in the summer times, we have a lot of brownouts and, and uh, we have cooling centers and places like that where, where, where vulnerable populations can go and congregate if there is a brownout. But here, if we can incorporate solar with battery, we'll be able to, to run uh, certain systems with our, our own building um elevators you know a lot of seniors can't negotiate you know the stairs if they're in wheelchairs elevators potentially some some um uh, refrigerating many of them have uh, medication that needs to be kept you know cold as well as our own common rooms we could make them transform them into cooling centers within the building 
So uh, we're really excited, you know, for, for, you know, the flexibility, you know, that this will give us, you know, moving forward. And then the fact that it generates its own revenue, we don't have to go out and find, you know, other sources of income. We can kind of leverage our own internal, you know, revenue stream to, to leverage additional funds, you know, and reduce the cost. So Tim, let me translate this, and I, I don't yeah. want to put words in your mouth, but did I hear whatever the capital investment might be in, in this, in the revenue you get from Con Edison, Mm-hmm. Capital investment is paid for in about eight years. Yes, that doesn't seem like a bad payback. Yeah, it's not too bad. No, we're we're yeah, we're, it was something. You know, you could roll your dice in the market, but this was this is a worthwhile you know investment. Uh, we're investing in our portfolio, you know, to make it more resilient, to make it more sustainable. Um, it certainly lines up with the initiatives of of the Pope Francis's encyclical. We are allowing low-income people, low-income uh, buildings to be part of the, the solution to uh, climate change, you know, which you don't often see. Are you only putting them on your own buildings or are you putting them on other buildings too? <laughs> Step one, you know, is our buildings, but it's, it's something we are keeping an open mind. You know, there, we certainly have, um, you know, the parishes within our diocesan territory that there could be an opportunity for us, you know, as if there's interest. We know there's a lot of school buildings um, and, and, and land throughout, throughout Brooklyn and Queens that we could, you know, solarize and, and, and help out some of those communities as well. So, so let me ask you kind of a silly question. Sure. Um, a lot of churches don't have flat roofs. Can you right. put solar panels on on slanted roofs? Sure, sure. Oh. As long, you know, it's solar exposure, which is to the south. You know, we're in the northern hemisphere. So as long as you have southern exposure, uh, and in fact, the slanted roof probably tilts the panels to more directly receive, okay. you know, the, the, the energy from the sun. Uh, again, it's the southern exposure that's, that, that's critical. And the other thing I might add, the solar panels actually absorb you know like i said the sun which protects your roof so you get a longer life out of your roof as it sees less wear and tear so there is a kind of uh, ancillary side benefit there tim mcmanus the senior vice president for catholic charities progress of people's development corporation which is the housing arm of catholic charities in the diocese of brooklyn and queens thanks so much for making me smarter (laughs) this solar panel stuff and solar energy Thanks for being a guest on Just Love. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Great. Tom, why don't we take a break? Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Um, I'm delighted that this week uh, joining us as on the show is uh, Luz Tavares. She has been a guest, but uh, she will be kind of helping out in the interview with Laura Collins in just a few uh, few moments. Luce, you were the one who kind of pointed out this book to me. Um, what really impressed you by the book? Why did you like the book? So, I, I mean, it's no secret uh, that uh, the presidency of George W. Bush is probably one of my favorites. Um, I'm a big fan of his, so I follow him all over social media. And uh, I, I've been a fan of some of the other work that he's done, some of the uh, portraits he's painted. But when I saw that he was painting a book based on immigrants and their contributions to this country, I just thought it was so important for us as Catholic charities. So much of our work is around immigrants. So I just thought it was so important for us to highlight it. Well, you know, Luis, we're just very, very different in age. So my favorite president was Abraham Lincoln. So I mean that was he's my era as opposed to uh, your 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 era. But I am absolutely delighted that you kind of pointed out the book to me, and I am delighted that we're joined now on Just Love by Laura Collins, who is the director of the Bush Institute at uh, SMU. And uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to talk to all of you today. Well, that is great. I am delighted. So, Laura, give our listeners just a little bit of, of your background. I know that you somehow wandered around Oklahoma for a while, and now you're in Texas. Give our listeners a little bit of your background. Sure. Well, um, I'm a native Oklahoman. I grew up in rural Oklahoma um, with uh, three siblings and my parents and um, ended up in Texas for law school where I met my husband um, and he was um, in the military, and so we ended up, um, after bouncing around a little bit, um, in Washington, D.C., where I started really working on immigration policy. So um, around 2012-2013 is when I really picked up this topic and, and started to work on it and have been blessed to keep working on that. Here um, at the Bush Institute, uh, I've been here for about six years now. And, um, you know, my husband's from, from the Dallas area. And so when it was time for us to move back, um, back closer to family, um, I was just really fortunate to land here. And the Bush Institute really believes that immigration is good for America. We think that America really uh, gains so much when we welcome immigrants to this country. And we've worked on this issue, um, mostly from the economic perspective, that it's good pro-growth economic policy for a long time. And you know, as in conjunction with the book and with the with the special exhibit we have here at the museum with President Bush's paintings, 
Um, we've also started to talk about the other pieces of immigration policy that are really important. What does it mean for us to, um, for the United States to be a leader in humanitarian uh, migration? How do we resettle refugees and really make that signal to the rest of the world that it's important? And in time of record global displacement that we bring people in, we help them resettle and we be that beacon of freedom and opportunity for them. What does it mean to have smart border policy as we've all seen in the news lately, um, you know, we have these asylum seekers at the border. We have other people who are coming to try to work. What does it mean for us to have a border that's um, a border policy that's flexible, that takes into account more than just security, more than just migration? The border is a vibrant place of culture, of trade and commerce, people who have family on both sides. What does it look like to have that policy that really works? And then, you know, we keep that grounding in the economics. We also talk about what does it mean to have a good rational policy for the undocumented? Right. We know that we have this population of people here who, uh, because of the way our immigration laws work, weren't really able to comply with them. What does it mean to you know, deal with them in a reasonable and rational way? And so, you know, I've just been I've been here working on this for a few years now and I'm really excited to um, have out of many one as, as one of those examples where we've got all of these numbers all of these good policy recommendations, but now we have faces and people because immigration is ultimately about human beings. And that was um, really what this book highlights, the, the human aspect of immigration policy and the successes that we've seen in immigrants over the entire course of our history. So, Luce, I know that you have done a, a fair amount of work in, um, in immigration policy, but what's... Do you have an idea about policy, individuals? How would you kind of, what question would you raise about that? Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up that point, Laura, and thanks, Ms. Senior. You know, I spent many years working in the state legislature before coming to Catholic Charities. I've been here for 14 happy years. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I learned working in the legislature was how important it is to add a face to a piece of legislation, Right. And in the foreword of the book, I noticed that the president does refer to immigration policy as a divisive issue, but how we don't pay enough attention to the individual immigrant. So maybe, Laura, you can tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, what was the thinking behind that? Because I'm sold on that, right? I think it's so important. But um, I, and we all know an immigrant whether we attach the policy issue to it is a different question. Yeah, you know, I think if you look at the history of the United States and immigration policy, we've had these various points in time where it becomes really heated and divisive and people get afraid of, of these, uh, you know, essentially strangers, right? They're strangers to us, but they're, um, no one's really afraid of their friend, their neighbor, the person sitting in a church pew next to them, their coworker. Um, and so, you know, how do we make sure to take those stories that we know um, exist? Um, and a lot of people in the book are just regular people, but there are some very famous people. If you look through the book, obviously here in Dallas, we, um, we know Dirk Nowitzki very well, uh, Dallas Mavericks player, but a lot of the other people in the book are not famous. They're just ordinary people, people that President Bush encountered in various ways. Some of them were members of um, the various leadership programs that we run here. Some of them were people who uh, naturalized here at the Bush Center. We had a naturalization ceremony in 2019 and President Bush got to meet a lot of those immigrants and new citizens. 
you know, they have their own contributions. Not every contribution of an immigrant is to start a Fortune 500 company, even though that's very important. Uh, so what does it look like when we actually take those stories of the everyday people you and I know, and that's all of your listeners probably know, and really highlight those contributions, because those everyday contributions are just as important as someone who is starting a company that employs thousands of people. But you know, Laura, let me, because Luce mentioned this to me about the choice of, of the people who were in the book. Obviously, you can't do anybody. But Luce, you pointed out to me, there was, you thought there was a little skewing of those who were there. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not a criticism, Laura, but I did notice that the book did focus on successful immigrants, right? Um, you know, whether it was the guy that started the train restaurant or, um, or Henry Kissinger, who Monsignor and I actually had the pleasure of meeting, um, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Um, but the people that we, we know on a daily basis, right? Whether it be, you know, our Uber drivers or, or a nanny or, you know, for some of us, even our, our parish uh, our priests or pastors right there, these are all immigrants that do um, daily jobs that help us live a better life. And I, I did feel like it was an omission of the book, but not a criticism. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, m- maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, uh, and why there was no focus on, on any of those types of people. Well, you know, again, a lot of these are people that uh, President Bush has come to know in some way. And I actually think if you uh, look at some of the stories, they are, you know, normal people. And so um, I, I'm or are you calling to my... Or are you suggesting that Ruth cherry-picked in her reading of the story? <laughs> Not at all. It's a long <laughs> book. I will admit, you know, um, I don't always... I have to refresh myself sometimes, too, because there's, you know, 43 portraits. It's a lot of people to try to remember. And again, they're not all famous. So, you know, I think a lot about um, Amy Absa, who is in the book. She was the um, parking garage attendant at the office building where President Bush's office was. And so he got to know her uh, just simply coming and going to the office every day. And um, I think a lot about our own colleague here, Joseph Kim, who is, um, he was a North Korean refugee. He had been orphaned. Um, His um, mother was sent to a labor camp. His father starved to death in a famine and he escaped North Korea on his own. And while we all think he's wonderful and important, um, you know, he is really one of those just ordinary people, just like us, Um, you know, he goes to work every day. He works very hard on the issues that he works on. He does focus on human freedom and trying to promote, um, you know, freedom and liberty around the world. But he's, you know, not famous. It's not like um, he's an everyday household name um, as much as we would love him to be because we think he's wonderful in the whole world, you know, who just is. And I also think about um, one of the people painted is uh, Paola Rendon, who was, um, who worked for President Bush's parents and help take care of their family. And, and, you know, he, I think he talks in the book about how that's one of the first immigrants he really got to know. And he got to know her and her family and she was with them for a very long time and became like a family member. And those are the sorts of people who aren't household names, but who are um, absolutely featured in this book because, you know, in their own quiet ways, they're very much contributors uh, to our country. Laura, let me move a little bit. Actually, we're speaking with Laura Collins, who is the director of the Bush Institute at Southern Methodist University. Uh, We're speaking about a variety of topics, but one, a recent portrait book on immigrants published by former President uh, Bush, Out of Many, One. And um, 
a little confession, Laura, I am an awful reader. I just don't read as much as I should. However, I have made it a point in the past week or so to read at least one of the stories in the in that book every day. And it is just a very, very, I think, wonderful sense of story. But I will tell you, as I read it, um, I became sad. And here's why I became sad. And when you begin your com- you began the conversation talking about some of the issues around uh, immigration policy, I really thought I was living 40 years ago. Nobody speaks rationally about immigration today. I mean, I, I suspect, um, you know, you, you have to be careful when you walk out of where you are. Because, I mean, the country is so divisive about, you know, about immigration policy. Uh, let me ask you this one. Is there any hope for us? You know, I'm an optimist, so there's always hope. But I will say, you know, one of the things that's really tough about this issue is that um, ultimately it's up to Congress, right? Um, There's only so much that the executive branch can do. And so, uh, and even if they do take action, like that, like when we saw with the Obama administration and deferred action for childhood arrivals, uh, for those dreamers who were brought here um, undocumented as children, um, we know that can be taken away. We know a court can reverse that. We know that another president can reverse that because it's executive action. Well, don't get me started because uh, (laughs) my civic lesson told me that Congress legislated, the president executed the laws, and when there was a dispute, the court adjudicated the differences, okay? That's my old ancient civics learned in the uh, Abraham Lincoln era, okay? Well... The new way we do policy is the executive branch issues a uh, an order. Those who don't like it sue. The courts adjudicate, and Congress does nothing. I mean, that's the way we've come to do public policy today. So, give me some hope, since you're an optimist. You know, it does feel like Congress really doesn't act unless there's an urgency. And so you've actually seen a movement of a lot of advocacy groups go away from talking about comprehensive immigration reform, right? Like, you know, and so what we've really tried to emphasize in our policy work is that the system needs a top to bottom overhaul, but we really don't care if Congress takes it up piece by piece or if they take it up in a big bill. They've got to find a way to work this out and find a way to come to, you know, a compromise because we know that we know they can. Um, We also know that immigration, for some reason, tends to be a tough vote. And I think a lot of people listening to this probably think, oh, you know, one side will never compromise on border policy and the other side will never compromise on the undocumented. And what we find is that Congress always comes to an agreement on those two issues. No bills have made it across the line because there are other pieces um, that have brought it down. And, And what we really see is that Congress has a lot of difficulty deciding to um, vote on bringing in more new immigrants than we have every year. And so it really is this issue of how many people we should be allowing to the United States every year. And, you know, I think that as a matter of economics, it's a good thing to allow in more people. We definitely need the workers. I think as a matter of humanitarian migration, it's a great thing for us to have our doors Some, wide somebody, open. Somebody's got to pay FICA so that I can get Social Security. 
Well, I mean, that's a, you know, that's another argument that a lot of, that a lot of economists make that, you know, immigrants aren't just helping grow our economy, that they're, you know, paying into that fiscal system, they're helping pay taxes and pay down those debts. And, you know, I think that, you know, so much of this conversation on the economics just gets caught up in this idea that um, immigrants are just taking, but immigrants create too, and we know they consume as well. And so they're creating jobs, um, not just because they're entrepreneurs, but also because they are using goods and services the same way that you and I do. And then more importantly, I think there's this, this real question about culture and assimilation and integration. And we know that there is a lot of fear that today's immigrants don't necessarily assimilate or integrate as fast as past waves. And and that's just not true. The data doesn't support that at all. We know that um, immigrants are becoming American just as fast as they were when it was my great grandparents coming in from Europe. Um, And so it's really succeeding. This is a family family show. We don't like to use four letter words like data. I mean, are you (laughs) suggesting that we develop our public policy based on fact and data? I am. I feel feel very strongly about that. (laughs) Hey, you know, Luce, a couple of years ago, put together a trip to the Northern Triangle. And I was on that trip with a couple of other people, and we learned a whole lot. Luce, you got any questions about where we are with that now? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things that I think, uh, you know, resonated with Monsignor and I and the other people on the um, trip is that many of the people in the Northern Triangle countries are dealing with internal displacement and that their, their goal is not to come to the United States necessarily. It's kind of their final, like the final push. They, they have no other, no alternatives. Um, and the other thing that Monsignor always says, and I think goes hand in hand with this, is that the border crisis is not a border crisis. It's an issue of the Americas, right? We have um, the people in the Northern Triangle and other South American and Latin American countries moving up. Um, we have the people at the border. And then, you know, we have all of the other issues that complicate. So, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your work in that area and what the focus is and uh, and what would be um, kind of your call to action for the Northern Triangle countries. Yeah, you know, my colleagues in the Economic Growth Initiative work on Central America policy, and we actually work with people in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador uh, on solutions that, you know, they know will work and that they think will help their country. And really, it's about helping these countries help themselves and, and ultimately remembering that a lot of what people are dealing with there is a lack of dignity, right? Um, When you don't have the same opportunity to uh, meet your potential in education or in economics, you know, you're not going to be able to thrive. And and we really want people to be able to thrive where they are because those are dangerous journeys to the border. And you're right to call it a regional issue, right? It's not just a United States issue. So often focus just on our Southwest border and, and how we deal with it there. But um, you know, good border policy starts with working with our neighbors in Mexico, and it starts with working in Central America to make sure people do have that opportunity to stay home if they want to. I think immigration is good. I think we should welcome people. I don't want people to leave because they don't have another choice. And so when you look at the problems that are really endemic in Central America, uh, corruption, um, 
violence, oftentimes gender-based violence. Um, some political instability was what we're seeing now. And then of course, um, there's always the issue of, um, you know, whether you're gonna be able to grow your crops or whether you're gonna be able to find a job to support you and demographics. Those are all just sort of the perfect mix for displacement, right? Those are things that cause people to need to leave. And while the Northern Triangle creates this as a regional issue for us, we also see displacement um, in Venezuela. We're going to see some displacement probably in Colombia, given the political situation there. But we're not the only developed country dealing with this. Um, other nations that are similarly situated are also dealing with their same issues of asylum and people trying to get to Europe, trying to get to the UK uh, to try to make a better life for themselves. One where they don't have to live in fear, one where they have the opportunity to support themselves and their families. And I think that we're going to see this as something that for the next few years, as the world begins to recover from COVID-19, that it's going to continue. We're going to continue to have lots of um, for lack of a better term, pandemic refugees, right? People who um, mm. maybe they're in a country that doesn't have access to vaccines. Maybe they're in a country whose economy takes a lot longer to recover than what we've seen here. Uh, people are going to be leaving to look for those opportunities. It's not going to be just something that we're dealing with here in the United States. This is going to be a global phenomenon. You know, Laura, one of the things you, you, you've mentioned, which is a way that I sometimes kind of think about the whole question of, of immigrants and quite frankly, a little bit of my disappointment in the current um, lack of civility and, and lack of data-driven uh, kind of dealing there is, you know, if you're running a business, okay, and <clears throat> you do everything in the whole world you do to attract customers, and if you don't get customers coming to you and you're a smart business person, you think something's wrong with your business. Well, if we look at our country as a business, the fact that almost every immigrant wants to come here. We should be incredibly happy that we have a quote unquote business country that people want to come to. And how do we use that attractiveness to build everything, build everything up? It just strikes me as crazy to not, you know, to not do that. I mean, I, I say this all the time. In, in New York City. If it weren't for immigrants, nobody would have a cup of coffee at a business meeting in the morning because everybody pushing the carts down the street are immigrants. Nobody's get coffee. I mean, and, and you just go, uh, now on the other hand, if we didn't have immigrants from Bangladesh, nobody in New York City would get parking tickets, which might be something that <laughs> That is good, but, but, uh, but you know, well, you someone has to, but someone has to write the parking tickets, right? Someone has well, to that's that role, that's right? Like, that's because you don't drive in New York City. Well, I, I understand that. But, I, I, you know, it's a role, and someone's got to enforce it, right? No, and, and this, I, this is not immigration, <laughs> so I'm in favor of amnesty for parking tickets. Okay. I think that you'll get lots of sympathy from that around around your listener base, Laura. Laura. Thank you so much. Laura Collins, the director of the Bush Institute at Southern Methodist University. Hey, you've been so, so generous with your time. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I'll come back anytime. Okay, great. We'll have you back. Tom, I think we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. Um, 
We'll be back with the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Luce, thank you so much for kind of joining me. I think that was a very, very kind of positive and very instructive kind of conversation we have. I have to say, though, I repeat what I said in the interview it does really sadden me that this is one of the few places you can have a rational conversation about immigration policy. Once you get to Congress, once you get on other talk radio, it's all about picking on people and, and things like that. So it's a little bit uh, disappointing. But anyway, um, but I'm glad we're doing this, as you pointed out. <clears throat> It's a timely conversation, given uh, our focus on immigrants this month. Uh, it is it is an important topic, but we got to keep doing it. And I think it was your basic point that you raised was that the more we focus on the individuals, uh, the better off we are. That it is about a policy, but the policy impacts individuals, and that is 
critically, critically important for us to realize. So thank you all for being with us on Just Love, Just Do It. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compact. Join us next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.